Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's hard to believe that we've been in this chapter for three months now. And we are just slowly uh, making our way through, but we're almost there. We have two sermons left this morning and next Sunday we will finish and conclude with the final verses. It's a bit uh, sad that we're coming to the end of our, of our journey together. Um, this morning here in verse 31, we are coming to a great, great finale. This, this climax of assurance and exaltation. In verses 31 through 39, Paul celebrates God. Paul celebrates God, namely his work. And also this complete confidence that we have as a result of his work. Without further ado, I want us to read these verses. We'll begin with verse 31 and we'll read through verse, beginning of verse 35. Look with me here and follow along as I read Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus Is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is indeed a a triumphant passage. And as Paul brings this chapter to conclusion, he concludes with, seven rhetorical questions. I want, to sh- I want you to think about this first one, verse 31. Look with me again at the first question. What shall we say to these things? And the immediate question is, what things? What things is Paul referring to? And I, I, I don't think it's a stretch for us to say that he's not only referring to verses 28 through 30, these things. He probably doesn't even refer to the entire chapter, chapter eight. But rather, he goes back all the way to chapter five where Paul begins to unfold the blessings of our justification. Flip with me back to Romans chapter five. And I I just want you to see the many blessings here that Paul enumerates for us that he outlines beginning with chapter five, Verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings our perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So right there in these five verses, we have the benefits of justification as peace, grace and hope, 
these molding trials and love, verse five, love. If we were to continue to read in 5.9, we find out that we have deliverance from wrath. 5.10, we have reconciliation with God. 5.11, there is this exultation or joy. 5.19, if you flip there, for us through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. We have righteousness of Christ. 6.4, Paul says that we have been given newness of life. 6.22, we have the freedom from sin, which results in eternal life, which is repeated again in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You have that now, today. In 7.4, Paul says that we are joined to Christ. We are married to Christ. In 8.1, we looked at this declaration that there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. In this entire chapter, beginning with 8.9, right, Paul says that those who belong to Christ have this resident Holy Spirit in them. The Spirit indwells them. In 8.15, he says that we are adopted into the family of God. We are children of God, sons of God. We looked last time that in verses 8 through, or 29 through 30, we have been foreknown, we have been predestined, we have been called, we have been justified, we have glorified. These are all the benefits or blessings of our justification. And you get this impression that Paul is, is stunned and, and awed by just this long list of truths. This is who you are now, believers. And it's staggering to reflect again and again that God chose to save us, to be gracious to us, to reconcile us to himself, to declare us righteous, to adopt us into his family and to promise us a glorious future with him. And Paul is basically wrapping up in verse 31 and he says, what are we to say to these things? Can anything be said at all? And Paul brings it to this conclusion. God's actions towards you prove that he's committed to you. These actions here that he describes in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, they prove that God is committed to you. The word here, if you look with me at verse 31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us? The word if here does not, you know, uh, just merely signify like possibility. God may be for you. No, it's a sure fulfillment. He is for you. And so it could otherwise be translated because God is for you. Since God is for you. Friend, God is for you. What can we say about our privileged position as God's children? God is for us. And, and we have to we have to let these words sink in and we have to meditate on these words. And that is our intention here this morning. God is not against us. God is not our adversary. God is not our prosecutor. 
God is committed to us. There may be no better thought than to know that God is on our side as Christians, as believers. No better thought. Think about this. Um, I know that I know that we all enjoy sports. We um, play pickup basketball game, maybe volleyball game or, or soccer, right? We do that during our summer season where we gather together and, and we pick two captains, right? Just imagine that there is a soccer match. We got two captains and you're thinking around and you're looking around at all the people and, and you're thinking this. If I can just have that guy on my team, we will win, right? Um, we have many good soccer players in our, in our church. And so every time, I'm terrible at soccer, but I'm willing to run around. That's fine. We'll get some exercise. But in the back of my mind, I think, I think if, this, if this captain here chooses John, for instance, right? Or if this captain here chooses Jan, I'm going to be good. I don't need to score anything because I can't score. But I'm just going to be running around and we will win. Why? Because we have that person, that player is on our side. Maybe you were preparing for some kind of group project and when you were choosing group members, you're thinking, if only I can have him. Or maybe you're preparing for a debate and you're saying, man, if I can partner up with this guy or this gal, we're going to go through everyone. Why? Because you know their value. You know their abilities. And this is exactly, this is exactly where Paul goes and he says, listen, friend, when it comes to eternal matters, you only need one on your side, and that is God. With him, he concludes, you will overwhelmingly conquer. You only need one on your side. You don't need 10, you don't need 15, you only need one, but it matters who's on your side, God. So here's this big idea that we're gonna, un, that we're gonna um, you know, try to get out of this passage. Christian, God is for you and will always be for you because of his son's exonerating work. God is for you today and he will always be for you because of what his son did and continues to do for you. He offers us here in these verses three levels of assurance. Number one, it is God's commitment, God's verdict, and God's intercession. God's commitment, verdict, and his intercession. So I want us to look at three points here this morning, three levels of assurance. Number one, nothing and nobody will overcome God's commitment to you. Number two, nothing and nobody will overturn God's verdict over you. And number three, nothing and nobody will overpower God's intercession for you. Let's look firstly at the first point in verses 31 and 32, nothing and nobody will overcome God's commitment to you. So after declaring, look with me at verse 31 again, after declaring that God is for us, Paul asks this question, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And so immediately we begin to think, um, who's against us? Well, the world is against us. 
right? The sinful system that, that constantly wants to conform us into its image. We know that our enemy, Satan, is against us. We learn from, for instance, 1 Peter 5.8, where Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know that even our own unredeemed flesh is against us. It, It fights us that we may obey its lust, as Paul indicated earlier in Romans. But Paul's point here in asking this question is not to indicate that we have no enemies, We have plenty of enemies. The enemies of the cross are numerous, but all of these enemies and opponents, they cannot successfully wage war against us so that they would overcome us. Why? Because God is for us. None of our enemies can compare to God. All the powers of hell and the world could come against us, but they will never prevail because God is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. All of our enemies are less than God. If you have God on your team, if you have God on your side, then nobody will stand a chance against you. Why does this matter? You see, friends, we, uh, when we are not soaking our minds and when we're not soaking our hearts in the gospel, we often think that God is prevented by something or someone to give you what you need. Or worst yet, we, we think that God is holding something from us. We, we become suspicious of God. We say, yes, it is true that God is good and he's committed to his children, but you know he's committed to his children over there, like those guys who are sitting on that side, but not to me. I don't experience his commitment or his goodness. You look at your situation, you look at your lot in life and and you become suspicious of God. You you think that there's something good out there that that God has prevented from, from giving it to you. I don't know, maybe you're a, you're a teenager here in our congregation now and, and you're raised in a broken family and you may be thinking, you know, my, my parents are so messed up. Maybe thinking, you know, we never have any money. How can God be committed to us? It's a legitimate concern. You may be a single person here wanting to be married, and, and you're thinking, you know, God is, is unable to give me or is withholding something wonderful for me. Why is he doing that? Or you may be a married person, and you find yourself in a difficult marriage, and you're thinking, you know, God has given me something that is not good. Your present circumstance your trial is threatening to undermine and ultimately overcome God's care or God's commitment to you. God doesn't seem to be meeting your present need. Read with me verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. You know, the simple answer, the simple response to your suspicion about God's commitment to you is this. Friend, he's giving you Jesus. He who did not spare his own son, 
he gave you Jesus. What Paul is telling us is that the very God we are asking this question, will you meet our need, is the same God who has given Christ to die on our behalf. There could never be a a costlier gift than the death of Jesus for us. And so Paul reasons this way, if God would give us his absolutely most precious possession, why would we ever doubt that he is withholding from us something less, less costly than his son? God proved his infinite love for you when Jesus died for your sins on the cross. No greater gift can be offered to you. No greater proof can be given to you that God is committed to your good. Look with me at verse 32. He who did not spare, did not spare. God did not keep his son is what Paul is saying. You may remember this story in Genesis 22 when God tells Abraham to go and to offer up his son Isaac to him. And in verse 12 of chapter 22, God tells Abraham, I know that you fear God since you have not withheld, same word, right? Spared your son, your only son from me. You see, with with Abraham, God intervened at the last second so that Isaac, his son, was spared but not so with his own son. No, Paul says, as he earlier indicated in the earlier chapters, that he did not spare, but he delivered him over. He delivered him over to death for us. Think about this. Do you understand what is being taught here in this passage? He, God the Father, delivered his son. And when we go back to the accounts of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and we consider this picture, this story of how Jesus' betrayal and and crucifixion unfolded, and, and we know that it was Judas who betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders. And we know that it was Jewish leaders who took Jesus and they handed him over to Pilate. And we know that it was Pilate who ultimately, what? Signed and ordered his crucifixion. In another passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. This word gave himself literally means, same exact word here, he delivered himself over. The Son delivered himself, willingly said, I am willing to go and I'm willing to die. But beloved, behind all of this, there was the Father who delivered his own son for us. Acts chapter two, verse 23, this man says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. We, we sing this song, right? The father will to crush him as a sacrifice for sin. We're reflecting on the truth that was taught in Isaiah 53, the father will to crush his son. He delivered his son for uh, us all. The cross of Christ demonstrates God's great love and total commitment to all the children of God. 
Who did he deliver him for? Verse 32, he delivered him over for us all. Who are the all here in this context? Well, if you look at verse 24, it is those who are saved, those who persevere, verse 25, those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, verse 29 and 30. In verse 33, it is God's elect. Listen, God did not die in hope that maybe some would decide to respond to the gospel message. No, Christ died effectually to save all whom the Father predestined to be saved. Scripture is very clear. So that Jesus could say this in John 6.39, all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. He did not spare his son for you who believe, but he delivered him over for you. How will he not, Paul continues, with him, with Jesus, freely, graciously. It's not like you had to work for Jesus. You didn't work for Jesus. I didn't work for Jesus. I didn't do anything. It was freely given to us. And so he says, how will he not also freely with Jesus Include it all as one package. Give us all things. Beloved, this sneaky, sinful suspicion that my present circumstance is threatening to overcome God's commitment to me, it must be silenced by the truth of the gospel found in this verse. In verse 32, God demonstrated his love for you in giving you Jesus. And if he gave Jesus, he will also give you all things. What does that mean? That he will give you all things. What's the logic here? Does God promise that he's going to give us a big house? Does he promise that he'll give us a high-paying job or maybe a perfect marriage and family? Is that, is that what he means here? Remember the context Remember what Paul is dealing with here. He is dealing with us being conformed to the image of Christ. The text doesn't say that God will give us all good things, but that all things that he is willing to give us are good. And it makes a difference. Everything that God gives is good, not just the things that seem to be good or that we can make sense out of. God is committed to you and will give you all things for your good and his glory. Isn't that what we've been dealing with here the last couple of times? You may not know how it'll all work out, but it will be because it is a gift through Jesus Christ. Friend, be assured that God is not holding anything back from you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because he has proven it already that he cares for you. You may not understand how this particular thing is meant to demonstrate his commitment to you, but God doesn't call us to understand the how. He only calls us to believe that. He is committed to us and nothing and nobody will overcome his commitment. Nothing and nobody. Think about this. If God can overturn the worst possible thing, which is the death of his son, into the greatest possible good, then you can be sure 
that he will give you all that you need for life and godliness, for your good and for his glory. If God is for you, who can be against you? So the first thing we see that nothing and nobody will overturn God's commitment to you because of his son. Number two, nothing and nobody will overturn God's verdict over you. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Once again, in light of these things, these things, who will bring a charge? Imagine for a moment that you're in a courtroom. You're in a courtroom setting. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom. Generally speaking, you should stay away from courtrooms. Probably a good idea, but... Usually, the, the parties that you find in the courtroom, right, you, you find the plaintiff, the one who brings the accusation with his lawyers, and then you find a defendant also with his lawyers, then you have a judge and perhaps jury. And with this question here in verse 33, Paul summons us into this courtroom And you can imagine that in this courtroom, there are some enemies trying to accuse you over some sins or even trying to convince God, the judge, that you are guilty of some crime that should nullify your salvation. Who would these accusers be? Verse 33, who will bring a charge? Who will accuse God's elect? Well, as I said before, the devil is our enemy. In fact, he is called the adversary. The, the, the title devil literally means someone who throws things against you, accuses you, right? He is called the accuser of the brethren in, in Revelation 12.10. How does he accuse us? Well, at times he accuses us before God as he did with Job. Remember Job? He went before God and he began to accuse Job, oh, if you would just remove some of these things, he will curse you. Or at times, the devil might remind us of our sins and we will be riddled with guilt, which sometimes can be very overwhelming. What about another accuser, another enemy, our own sins? Look what Jeremiah 14.7 says, Jeremiah 14.7. He says, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly, our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. We, we sing this song, I have a shelter in the storm, right? And second verse goes like this, I have a shelter in a storm when all my sins accuse me and justice charges me, what? With guilt. All our sins. Another song we sing, our sins, they are many. There are many sins, but here's this amazing truth that is being offered for us in verse 33. Although many of these accusations are true, no accuser will bring a charge so as to overturn God's already pronounced verdict. God is the one who justified God justifies you here. He proclaimed you justified. And since God declared you righteous in Christ, no accusation will stand. Remember what justification is. It's an act of God who declares you as righteous. He changes your legal status from guilty and worthy of hell to not guilty, 
innocent because of his son. And because of his son, you will be where his son is. It's a change of status. How are we justified? By works? No. By grace through faith. It's a free gift. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So no charge can be brought against God's elect because they have already been declared righteous through faith. Look with me back at verse 33 in your Bibles, and look what he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Why God's elect? Why not God's children, something he already described us as children of God and sons of God, or, or those, who, those who are God's believers? Why did he choose to, to use this title, God's elect? God's elect. Listen as I read to what one pastor said, in which I think he hits the nail on the head. He says, Paul emphasizes election because when you're feeling guilty over your sin, you're prone to doubt your faith in Christ. You may be thinking, maybe I'm not a believer. How could a true believer do what I just did? Right? We find ourselves in, in this dilemma. And he continues, if salvation rests on your faith or your choice of Christ, then it's really going to be shaky when you sin. If the accuser can get you to focus on your feeble faith, he can condemn you knowing that you're saved because God first chose you in spite of your sin is essential in battling gift or guilt. It means that no one can produce new evidence to get God to change his mind and disown you because he chose you before the foundation of the world, knowing all about your sins that you would commit both before and after he saved you. Does that make sense? He saved you knowing full well that you're a sinner. That's why he saved you. God's elect. How do you know that you're God's elect? Well, we've been saying, are you believing in Christ? Are you coming to Christ? Are you being led by the Spirit as Paul's been indicating here and teaching us in Romans chapter 8? then yes, you're God's elect. Friend, do you find yourself ever wondering, does God hold anything against me? You go to sleep at night or you wake up in the morning and you're wondering, am I okay with God? Can anyone ever show up? Can anything ever show up before God to influence God or, or to bribe him to overturn this non-guilty verdict? And Paul's answer here in verse 33 is a resounding no. No, those who are in Christ are set free in this life and the next. No prosecution can succeed because God has justified us. It's like the gavel has come down. The case is closed. You are justified. God will not reopen that again. Why? Because Jesus paid for all of your sins. Hebrews says that by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. Not just for today, for all times. Those 
who are sanctified. No accuser can go before God and say, look at Tim. Look at him. Look what he's doing. Look what he's thinking. You sure you want to justify him? Yes, because of the work of the Son. This same verse, I have a shelter, goes like this. I have a shelter in the storm when all my sins accuse me, though justice charges me with guilt. Your grace will what? Not refuse me. I think this is what he's telling us here. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you who bore my condemnation. I find my refuge in your wounds, for there I find salvation. We don't deny that we're sinners and need to be damned. That's not what we do. We acknowledge that we are sinners worthy of hell, but we look to Christ who died for us, who was delivered over for us. And we look to that new legal status, justification. God declared us righteous. Nothing can overcome God's commitment to his people and nobody can overturn his non-guilty verdict over those who are declared righteous by grace through faith. Two levels of assurance. But there's a third level here in verse 34. Nothing and nobody will overpower God's intercession for you. Nothing and nobody will overpower God's intercession for you. He continues with the same theme and he says in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Who is the one who ultimately could condemn you? Is there anything? Is there anyone? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Paul says this, that Jesus Christ will not stop going to bat for you. I don't know if you were ever in a legal dispute of some kind, maybe someone brought a case against you or you were thinking about bringing a case against everyone, someone else and, and you're always thinking about lawyers, right? You're always thinking about, man, who can represent me? I need to find somebody, right? Or maybe someone is accusing you of something and you look at his legal team and you're like, well, How much do I owe you, right? Why? Because you don't stand a chance. Listen, Jesus Christ is your advocate. His death, resurrection, exaltation, all make his prayer or his intercession effective for you. Notice who the spotlight is on. He says in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? And he's not looking at you. He's not looking at me. It's not like he's saying, well, look at this saint. Look at this Christian. How can you condemn him? He's forgiven. He's sweet. He's caring. He's gentle. He's kind. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, yes, worthy of condemnation. But he says, look, he puts the spotlight not on the saint, not on the believer, but he puts the spotlight on Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He who died, he says. Jesus died. Why? Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered because of our transgression. He died for us. He died for the very sins that would have condemned us. 
He died, but he was raised. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who was raised? He was raised. Jesus resurrected. Why? It was God's stamp of approval showing that God accepted Christ's death as a payment for our sin. And as such, we can now be justified because he continues on in Romans 4.25 that he was He died, right, because of our transgression. He was delivered over and resurrected for our justification. So he died, and then he came back up. He was resurrected, and then we read that he was exalted to the right hand of God. He ascended to the Father's right hand. This right hand here pictures this idea of ultimate power and of highest of honors, This means that nothing and nobody can challenge Christ's position. He is first. He is preeminent. That's what we studied here in verse 29. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. He's at the right hand of God. No one can challenge God. No one can override Christ. And get this. Possessing all power and possessing this supreme honor, Jesus is preoccupied with praying for us. Who also intercedes for us. You would think that someone of this status, possessing this honor, maybe would find something better to do in heaven. But he intercedes. He continues to minister on behalf of sinners. He continues to serve us sinners. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession for them. And you're thinking, what is Jesus praying for? Right? How many of you ever wondered, what's he praying for? What's he interceding for? Charles Wesley, he wrote this hymn that uh, Sovereign Grace um, just um, added a, a chorus to it recently. It's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. And I think this hymn here summarizes the prayer of Jesus. It it looks to heaven, to the throne of God where Jesus is, and it pictures Jesus as standing before the Father with his hands and, and feet, and the Father looks at him and he sees his wounds. And Jesus is praying on behalf of sinners, yes, worthy of hell but he is praying that they will forever be saved. Look what Charles Wesley wrote. He said this, arise my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive them, cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. 
My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's what Jesus does. Forgive him. Forgive him. The only person who could actually condemn us has actually been condemned in place of us. Do you hear that? The only person who could actually condemn us has been condemned in place of us. And friends, Christ is committed to us more than we are committed to him. More than we are committed to him. We can stumble and we often do. We fumble, but he is praying unceasingly, fervently, and Successfully, he prays successfully. And the father turns a deaf ear to any accusation against the believer because he sees the crucifixion wounds on his son and he hears the perfect intercession of his son. Robert Murray McShane said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, Jesus is praying for you today, right now. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, he cries. Beloved, nothing and nobody will outpray you. And nobody will outpray you. Jesus, that's the most important thing. Douglas Moo says, with such a defense attorney, it is no wonder the prosecution loses its case. Friends, Romans 8.31 is true. God is for us. God is for us. And Romans 32 through 34 assures us of that. We need to let this truth saturate us so that we can cry out, yes, I believe it, I affirm it. Nothing will separate me from God. Many of you know of Martin Luther, but not many know of his contemporary, Philip Melanchthon. He served along with Martin Luther during the Reformation. He was also a scholar. He was a gifted preacher and certainly had a a gentler disposition than Luther. They stood together until the very end, and in fact, Melanchthon, he preached at Luther's funeral in 1546. And uh, when he died, he was actually buried right next to Luther. Now, they encountered lots of attacks, especially during this Reformation, and the question was always, what made this man strong enough to endure this adversity during Reformation? What made him so bold yet so gentle? And after he had passed away, many have studied through his letters and through his lectures, and they found out that Romans 8.31 is quoted more than any other scripture in all of his lectures and letters. They recount a time when Melanchthon was sensing that he was dying and 
As he was laying in his bed, his pastor was reading scripture to him and he read Romans 8.31 and as he did that, Melanchthon, he cried out, read those words again. And the pastor read, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Melanchthon cried out, that's it, that's it, that's it. That's the truth. In the darkest hours, Melanchthon comforted himself by reciting, if God is for us, who can be against us? Beloved, all who are in Christ can do the same and must do the same. All who are in Christ must do the same. This promise is for the believers. If you're in Christ, you have levels of assurance. If you're not in Christ, you don't have this assurance. You need Jesus to go to bat for you. You can't stand before God and pretend that you will somehow argue your way into the kingdom. Not a chance. And you know that. Don't deceive yourself. You need Jesus Christ, whose payment must be applied to you, whose prayers must include your very name before the Father. And he freely offers it today. Come, behold this wondrous mystery in the cross of Christ. Come and believe. Come to Christ. God is for you if you do. And he will always be for you because of his son's exonerating work. God's commitment to you is sure. His verdict for you is sure. Christ's prayer are always successful. His intercession is always effective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Amazing reminder. Whatever it is that we're battling right now in our minds, thinking that, well, how about this? What about this? How can this be used for good? Or, or, or how can God do away with this? Lord, I, I just pray, may we be encouraged. May we be confronted in our unbelief. And may you strengthen us in faith to believe what your scripture declares to be true that there's no one and nothing who will condemn. There's no one and nothing who will bring a final charge against us. There's nothing that will separate us. Why? Because you are for us. Thank you. Amen.